From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we Take on the South. Southern politics is a phrase that sometimes inspires fear in presidential candidates, occasionally gives hope to others, invites pollsters to prognosticate, and always prompts spirited debate at the dinner table. Questions abound. Is there still a distinctly Southern politics? Does the South still matter in national politics? And if so, how much does it matter? Today's guest helps us answer these questions and more. Joshua Meyer Gutbrod is an affiliate of the Institute for Southern Studies at the University of South Carolina and teaches in the Department of Political Science. His research explores the limits of the growing animosity between Democrat and Republican politicians that's associated with partisan polarization. He received his PhD from Cornell, and he maintains the Digital Campaigns Project. Josh, welcome to Take on the South. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure entirely. So before we begin, can you tell us something about your research? How do you do it? What, what are your sources? My research predominantly focuses on uh, state politics and state political campaigns. And I do a lot of work with campaign websites, looking at issue ownership and uh, issue rhetoric at the state and local level, trying to figure out where the partisan lines sort of break down, where we see Republicans talking about democratically, traditionally democratically owned issues, and where Democrats are talking about Republican owned issues. Um, to just figure out where we where we can find common ground in the United States these days at the state and local level specifically. So could you give us an example of what is a, a conventionally democratic issue that Republicans are trying to own? Conventionally democratically owned issue that Republicans might be trying to own in the South, in certain parts of the South, certainly climate change comes up, um, especially in coastal communities and places like Florida and South Carolina, where climate change could have a significant impact on tourism or the community more broadly. You see Republicans starting to talk about it in a positive way, in addition to energy independence and incorporating things like wind and solar power, which are typically you know, the domain of the Democrats nationally, but where Republicans are willing to step in at the state level and start to advocate for it. Yeah, and, and flip that too. What, what, what about the Republican own, uh, Democratic ownership of Republican issues? Um, certainly the Second Amendment looms large, especially in Western states. If you're looking at Democrats in Montana, Wyoming, or even in the far Northeast, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine area, Democrats are more than willing to take a firm stance protecting the Second Amendment in those states and are willing to do so at the expense of sort of national support on that issue. And, and does that also apply in the South? It, certainly in the South as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, anytime you see a, the out party within this, the, the political regime in the state, the out party is more willing to trespass on those issues. And at times it's it's out of political necessity, trying to win over voters. And at times it's out of expediency, dealing with major issues within the states. So what is your research base? Like how do you get the answers to these questions? So most of my work deals with campaign websites. And I actually go around and dig out and find campaign websites. And there's a most candidates have them. About two-thirds of candidates have a campaign website. And I've been doing this since 2016. 
Uh, and then I break down the websites into issue positions. And I've got a team of undergraduates that looks at it and codes it by issue arena. And what I'm really interested in looking at is variation in issue ownership. Who's dedicating more space to issues? And you do see some significant variation down at the state level, not just from challengers trying to make headway in an outside district, but even from incumbents, like firmly entrenched incumbents. Uh, willing to uh, sort of trespass on those issues and talk about things that the national party wants to stay away from. That two-thirds number staggers me. (laughs) It strikes me as almost unbelievable at some level because a third are not using websites? Some incumbents rely on their their, uh, legislative website. Others rely on Facebook. Still others, if they're not in a contested election, keep in mind only about two-thirds of state legislative elections are contested. So if there's not in a contested election, they really have little incentive to put something permanent and durable on the internet that's going to hold them to a position that might need to change later. Actually, that makes a great deal of sense. (laughs) Thank you. That, That clarifies that because I was rather shocked. Can you tell us what you're working on now? And I suspect, Josh, that you'll be a regular guest on this show because politics changes and we want your input on those changes and and what they might mean. But what are you doing right now? The big project right now is getting a hold of the Virginia data for the Virginia election that's going on right now. We're recording here on the 16th. Tomorrow, in-person voting starts in Virginia, which is 45 days early voting. uh, No questions asked, but you do need to show an ID. And the last day to register to vote in Virginia is October 12th. So if you are listening to us in Virginia, hopefully you're registered to vote and ready to vote. Um, But looking at the Virginia campaigns and what's going on there, because that's going to be an interesting election, not only for state level politics, but also just in light of what's going on nationally and how Virginia stands as sort of a purplish state with some heavy blue hues as of recently. So the election is... Proper November the 2nd. November the 2nd, that's correct. And what's up for grabs? Governor, Lieutenant Governor, Attorney General? And uh, the big one is the House of Delegates. So the whole House of Delegates is up again. Is that right? Yeah, all all 100 seats. And the Republicans lost 21 seats in between 2017 and 2019. So the Democrats actually have a 10-seat advantage. 95% of the races there, 95 out of the 100, have incumbents running in them. But the Republicans are certainly hoping to flip that House of Delegates. Okay, so what are the key variables here? What is going to change, do you think, and why? That's a really hard thing to guess right now, given the state of national politics. Uh, As much as my research focuses on these issues that divide, there is a heavy influence of national politics in Virginia right now. We're coming fresh off the California election, where you saw a heavy influence of sort of the, the figure of Donald Trump looming large. And uh, that's certainly playing out in Virginia as well. You've got uh, Terry McAuliffe, uh, the Democratic candidate, who's attempting to tie his opponent to Trump as much as possible. And uh, meanwhile, the Republican candidate, Youngkin, is not necessarily distancing himself from Trump, but he's, he's not openly engaging in that connection while at the same time laying on the same critiques associated with the coronavirus and, and the implementation and response to coronavirus policies in the state. Now, Youngkin is, is no Larry Elder. I mean, no. He's not embracing the Trump brand in any real shape or form. No, he's not. So, so this is an attempt to, to stick it on him. Yes. So this, this complicates things, it seems to me at least, from an outsider's perspective. Elder essentially elected Newsom. Yes. Prevented him from being <laughs> recalled. It, how important is this, do you think, for the outcome of this, this governor's race in Virginia, that, that Youngkin can keep Trump at bay, at least uh, rhetorically? 
Trump did not do well in Virginia. Hillary managed to win in 2016 49, with 49%. Biden extended that lead to 54% in 2020. Um, and so if the Republicans of Virginia want a shot at that governor's office and want a shot at flipping that House of Delegates, uh, they, they do need to dis- distance Trump in part just to bring back some of those suburban areas, which have the demographics have been shifting towards the Democrats over the last few years. Uh, now, McAuliffe is, of course, outraising Youngkin by quite a lot. But at the same time, history says that the incumbent president, usually his party does poorly in Virginia. And five out of the last seven years that they've had midterm elections like this, his party has lost. So both interesting at the state level, but also interesting to see how this plays out in terms of differing strategies between here in California and what the 2022 midterms might look like. Do you think that the urban, non-urban divide in California that largely accounted for Newsom's victory would also apply in Virginia? Does it matter as much? I mean, I know the suburban areas, but it's really the the urban areas that are very hard, hardcore Democrat in Virginia, correct? Yeah. The suburban areas represent an area that can be flipped. Uh, the suburban areas historically were Republican until recently, although the Democrats have been making headway in Virginia well before Trump came into the picture. So how many years have they been made, making headway forward? Would you say? They got unified control in 2019. That's the first time since 1994. Uh, but I think they've won the last 12 open state races in Virginia. So like full state voting. The, the Republicans had been holding on to that House of Delegates, but let's remember that the House of Delegates has been extremely close up until 2019. In fact, if I remember correctly, in 2017, um, it was it was 20, maybe it was 2015. It was the 50-50 split, and they actually decided the winner by a coin toss. Um, so it's been a very tight state, but it has been moving Democrat for a number of years. So let, let's talk about these demographics and, and let's see if they're sort of impacting the southernness of this state, as it were. I mean, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but what proportion of people in Virginia are actually not from the south? Well, most of the demographic changes occurring in Virginia are coming out of the military around D.C. And so you see you know, the Pentagon having a heavy influence there in the military. And that moves a lot of people around. I I grew up in a military town in Leavenworth, Kansas, and you see people coming in from all over the country quite regularly, especially in towns that are heavily favor officers uh, like Virginia in that area around Arlington. Um, And so that's a big part of it. That being said, I don't think it makes it decidedly less Southern. If anything, it makes it decidedly more Southern because you're seeing demographic shifts like that across the South, especially post-COVID, you're seeing immigration influxes. South Carolina, I think, had the third biggest, uh, third or fourth, don't quote me on that. I'd have to look it up. I I did my census talk a little while ago, but they had one of the top 10 biggest increases in population from out of state coming in as of this census. And you're seeing that across the South. And that's part of what's driving these differences in states like Georgia. And that's part of what's making states like South Carolina and frankly, the rest of the South interesting political places. I like this argument that it's actually becoming more Southern in a way. And that makes sense to me. Talk about the honeymoon period for a sitting president and and how long that lasts. And more importantly, we've had a lot of changes in the past, what, four weeks. 
it strikes me that that honeymoon period has ended. Or am I wrong about that? Oh, no, you're absolutely right. The Just everything going on with Afghanistan has certainly put an end to any honeymoon period. Not to mention you see um, major legislation at the national level stalling out, specifically the infrastructure bill, with uh, moderate Democrats increasingly signaling that they want to pull out of that. And you saw Biden's polls drop. I have the... It was it was like August 24th to August 25th, somewhere in there. Uh, suddenly Biden's approval and disapproval rating flipped. Now, what's striking, though, is if you look at the polling in Virginia, you don't see a similar shift. Uh, Virginia polling has been rather consistent, actually, across the election. It's gotten a little bit tighter, but that tightness occurred well before Biden's poll shifts. I mean, you really have a battle for two presidents going on in Virginia in this election and as to whether or not which one is going to be more influential in turning out votes, whether it's going to be Biden's low approval numbers right now or whether it's going to be sort of the specter of Trump. So is that largely because McAuliffe has taken a more moderate stance and sort of has he has he tried to distance himself from Biden on some of these issues? Certainly on some things related to the the coronavirus and the pandemic, he hasn't willingly engaged in discussions of mass mandates. He said it should be left to personal consideration and personal conscience. And I think part of it is just that I think the the governors are limited. They're limited in how much they can do given the national media market and what's going on there. I I think part of the reason they're being durable is McAuliffe distancing himself as well as Youngkin somewhat distancing himself. And so you have crossing frames there. And at the same time, you just don't have the national attention that you do on Virginia. Certainly California has gotten way more attention. Uh, going into that recall election, which surprises me a little bit. Yeah, that that is, although I suspect it's it's largely a function of the uh, kind of two personalities that were involved in in California. What's interesting to me is that here you have two candidates in Virginia who are running away from their very respective presidents or former presidents. So they're reading something in not just the local tea leaves, but are they reading something in the national tea leaves? It's hard to say. I mean, certainly, I think Virginia being that purplish sort of state matters, that in in these purplish states where neither party really has a strong command. And again, remember, uh, it wasn't until 2019 that the Democrats had that unified government. And even in 2017 and 2015, that House of Delegates was almost completely split even. And so in these purplish states, distancing yourself from those national parties matters. But more broadly in politics, I think states are trying to reassert themselves. Um, And they're trying to reassert themselves not only against partisan opposition, but also against partisan allies where they may want to maintain a different level of rhetoric. And we see that in some of the campaign data with states being willing to go against the national party to try and sort of push a local agenda that will benefit the state, but that may be unpopular nationally with constituents. So I I know you're you're focusing on Virginia right now, but could we have a, a quick look back at what happened in the Senate race in Georgia or the Senate races in Georgia? Would, would, would that comport with what you just said? I think the Senate races in Georgia is a slightly different game because they did occur during uh, a major election, right? Virginia, and it, we, we're not talking about New Jersey, obviously, but New Jersey's running an election on November 2nd as well. If you're listening in New Jersey, be sure to get out there and get registered and go vote. But these states like Virginia, New Jersey, Louisiana, they sit in an interesting position because they are on off-year elections. They're not lining up with the federal schedule. That being said, where they do cross over is a lot to do with those demographic shifts. And anytime you see out-party candidates running in states like we saw with the Democrats winning both seats in Georgia, 
they're going to have to distance themselves to try and win those moderates. Again, we will see how well that trickles up into national politics, whether they take that distancing and move it into policy terms or not. Fundraising. I was fascinated to hear you say that McAuliffe is just outstripping his opponent here. McAuliffe is, is at the, the last date I saw was uh, late July, I believe. But yeah, McAuliffe is making more. They're spending about the same. But Youngkin's bringing a lot of his own money to the table really? on, that, on that funding. McAuliffe, you have to keep in mind, is heavily tied to the National Party. As much as he's distancing himself, right. he is heavily tied to the National Party. He was DNC chair for four years. He worked on both Clinton campaigns for president, um, and he was a previous governor. And Virginia has weird rules about term limits. So you're not allowed to run for successive governor posts. So you can run, you can win, you can hold the seat for four years, then you have to quit and come back again later. And that's the position McAuliffe is in. So it's, it's an open race, but he is in some sense running as an incumbent, which comes with a heavy funding advantage as well. Yes, of course. I, although I'm curious, I mean, surely the RNC is taking Virginia very seriously. Well, it should. It is, but keep in mind the RNC is capped on how much it can give. Gotcha. Um, And I think they've probably maxed out all those caps. Um, Now, I have no idea on sort of dark money flowing into the state, which is, of course, an increasing issue in state politics with outside money flowing in that's not moving through typical channels. I, I haven't seen data on that. Probably won't get data on that until after the election. So you have been uh, sort of canvassing these campaign websites in Virginia. Anything interesting beyond the governor's race? You've got the the five open seats. It's a fairly competitive state. That's the point. I'm just highlighting the websites now because I try and grab them close to the campaign or close to the election day. Um, but it's a fairly competitive state comparatively. We mentioned that, you know, a significant chunk of state races run unopposed. Um, and that's not true in Virginia. I went through the, the list last week and looking at the, the roles, and it looks like most of the races, uh, well over 90%, have major party competition, if not additional third parties. The House of Delegates is in a competitive position. The party establishments are turning out candidates in all those districts, in most of those districts. And so that's always a good sign for the 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 competitive level of the state. Other than that, catch me again shortly after the election when I've looked at all the campaign uh, content and we'll see what differences there are there. Yeah, I mean, I find these campaign websites really interesting, not just from a policy point of view, but from an aesthetic point of view, right? So some of them are extremely slick and well done, aren't they? And some of them are quite appalling and clumsy. How do you view what you see? I always say there's three, essentially three types of campaign websites. There's the professional website, which looks like a national campaign website. It's got nice issue positions. It's got the donors page. And that's sort of like what we like to see for research purposes, because we're getting a good view of the candidate and what they're actually out there saying. Of course, some people don't need to put that up. They're either not facing competition or maybe they don't want to. They're sitting in an incumbency and not feeling like they need to put their stances out there. The other side of the coin would be the, the donor website. Just a simple donation page. Give me money. Give right. me money. Um, and maybe if you're lucky, a link to a Facebook page with a Facebook feed of events. Uh, and then on the opposite end of the spectrum, um, I, I refer to this group as the bloggers. They have a lot to say. Yeah, I bet they do. I bet they <laughs> and do. It's, they run it like a blog and they're regularly updated and they have commentary on pretty. And this ranges from incumbents to challengers. Uh, you get some incumbents who do a really great job blogging every week in this legislative session on their campaign website. So I don't want to get too much in the weeds on the research side of things, but I do find this very fascinating. Because you focus on campaign websites, but it seems to me that 
isn't Facebook going to eclipse the importance of those websites over time just because it's, it's livelier and, and has a greater reach? Or am I wrong about that? You're absolutely right. It's a direction I'm, I'm moving in slowly. There's key differences, though, in, in the types of content you want to put up. Facebook is much more interactive, which is the direction a lot of website content is going. You know, Barack Obama, when he ran, uh, really revolutionized how websites operate in that fashion in terms of getting... Uh, constituents and activists and donors to interact with the campaign. And Facebook has really stepped into that role strongly where people can comment or you can push out events more quickly or things like that. Uh, Websites remain important as sort of a static comprehensive where the campaign sits. You can only get so much into a television ad or radio ad But if you can get them to come to your website, they can see all the positions. Now, to the degree that those positions matter, to the degree that you're campaigning on substantive issues, websites will still be dominant over Facebook. But if we move away from those issue positions, if you're campaigning more on I'm a Republican or more on I'm local, look at me, I'm always around, that's where you see start to see Facebook take over and Twitter for that matter and other social media. I suspect that it's probably more difficult to do research with Facebook right? Because you have to sort of scrape data that's problematic. Facebook is very challenging. Uh, Not to say websites are easy, but Facebook is very challenging. Yeah, call me cynical, but I suspect just because people change their positions on issues quite a lot, that Facebook is more amenable to that kind of slipperiness of policy than a, a kind of gold standard campaign website that hooks you into a position, especially in a very plastic changing world. I mean, COVID has changed the equation. People are shifting masks or not masks, personal right, federal right, state right. And I suspect that that Facebook is much more amenable to the current political climate than this kind of commitment for, that you get from a, a, a campaign website. Does that strike you as true? That's absolutely true. Although voters tend to be fairly myopic. And they, they tend to forget what you said four years ago or eight years ago until your opponent brings it up. I think with COVID, you certainly do see big shifts. Um, people keep moving back and forth on these issues. Even in South Carolina, for example, you see Republican legislators starting to call on the majority party in the state legislature to come back in and revisit these mask mandate bans and things like that. Um, and you see that in other states as well, that interesting times call for interesting politics, I suppose. Yeah, and it calls for a kind of um, almost a a nationalization of positions, right? Because you don't see these just in the South. Precisely because you see it in, say, South Carolina, that really echoes a kind of national tendency to be very nimble. Some people would call it unprincipled, but they're going to look at it as nimble. We need to adjust according to these changing times. But because these changing times are national, is that somehow diluting the distinctiveness of what's going on in the South to some extent. Again, I think it really, it sheds light on what's going on in the South is that juxtaposition of what can be seen as national trends. Uh, Democrats have clearly staked out their claim pro-vaccine, pro-mask. Republicans, I'm I'm not going to say anti-vaccine and mask because that's not true, but certainly uh, pro-civil liberties. They want individual choice to matter more. And and that's at the national level, but increasingly at the state level, you see that breaking down in, in terms of practicality, trying to figure out what on boots on the ground, how do we handle this dilemma? Um, and that's absolutely, it's a problem in the South, but it's also a problem pretty much everywhere in the country as states who are, you know, the main sites of engaging in this type of policy implementation, try and 
figure it out in uncertain times. So, so in a way, COVID has made the issue of state authority much more important than it was before. In a way, I mean, this is they're, they're, they enact the legislation and they're the they're responsible for policing it essentially, right? I wouldn't say it's made it more important. I th- I would say it's made us realize how important it is. Oh, and, uh, I, I like your argument. We're always going about the absolute importance of southern states. And I'm very sympathetic to that argument. I'm asking you sort of unfair questions because I'm roaming around the South here, but I'm especially interested not just in Virginia um, and the Georgia races, but I'm, I'm keenly interested in Florida. To what extent is Florida like Virginia or going to become like Virginia, do you think? That's a really hard question because the immigration patterns are different in Florida than they are in Virginia. You're dealing with totally different populations. You're dealing with, frankly, a very different economy to boot, uh, much less of the agrarian agriculture that Virginia has, much more of the tourism industry. Florida is an interesting conundrum in the South. And I mean, historically, that's always been true. It fits the Republican mold right now, but politically it's adopted that sort of cloak, but at the same time, the politics it deals with are vastly different. I don't see Florida going purplish the same way that Virginia has. That's not to say it won't go purple for very different reasons. And you won't get these same conflicts. Now, of course, DeSantis is sitting in a good position. Um, He's had strong approval rating, and he's, of course, sort of the next known competition for that top post in the Republican Party. It remains to be seen how that plays out. I I cannot, we we all stopped speculating on presidential politics when Trump won the primary. (laughs) Of course we did, of course we did. Any, Any sort of final observations about Southern politics generally, or Virginia in particular? I mean, are you, are you sort of thinking, oh, it's probably going to be a Democratic win, but it, it's going to be you know, complicated at the margins? Is, is that the, the general I, view? I certainly think it's going to be complicated at the margins. I think, I think Virginia is going to stay close. And that, you know, nobody's walking out of there with a, a major legislative mandate. Um, and that's going to keep them down the middle of the road in terms of policy. And in terms of, you know, big picture for the South, I think what you said a moment ago with COVID really shedding a light on the role of the states and local politics as well is really important. And so just encouraging people as they're paying attention to politics to, you know, turn off, you know, MSNBC and Fox News and these natural national outlets and CNN for that matter, and pick up the local newspaper and make sure you're voting in your local elections because they really do matter. We're going to have you on many times, but I do want to say thank you, Dr. Maya Gutbrot, for giving us your keen insight to not just Virginia politics, but Southern politics generally. And we look forward to having you back on Take on the South. Thank you. That was our Take on the South. Let us know yours. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at U of SC South. Take on the South is produced by Matt Simmons of the Institute for Southern Studies. Special thanks to Professor Dave Garner of the University of South Carolina School of Music for composing our music. Tune in next time for another Take on the South. (laughs) 